Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're officially into the second half of this Burning Books season entitled Declaration Centenary where we're looking at books about Israel from writers both within and without, including Syed Kashua, Asaf Gavron, Orly Castell-Bloom, Dror Burstein, all in episodes preceding this one, and for the future, S. Yazar, Yoa Hoffman, and Omri Bum. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English. Some are contemporary, others classic. Today, we are looking at I Pity the Poor Immigrant by the American author Zachary Lazar. It's about the desert, the gangsters, the gamblers, and strivers that tie Las Vegas and Israel. It was published in 2014, and I'm going to come right out and say it. I liked it. The narrator of I Pity the Poor Immigrant speaks directly to the reader. The narrator speaks to the reader about the book that the reader is reading, and about how the book came to be, about the people who influenced the contents of the book and how they influenced it. The narrator is very clearly addressing you, the reader. But that narrator, it takes a second to realize, is not the author. She's a character, and her name is Hannah Groff. Lazar and Groff have something in common, though. In fact, they have a lot in common. But there are critical differences, and the difference in gender is one way of pointing out the fictional nature of what seems like a factual account. It's a way of keeping the reader on his or her toes. Awake. Attuned. For me, it worked. One of the first things the narrator says directly to the reader in the short opening section of this novel is that it's been almost a year since she and her father last saw one another, and that this is a recurring pattern in the story that is about to be told. Fathers and their children drifting apart, losing contact. And this does turn out to be true, but it's what the narrator Hannah says a little later in this opening section that proves key. In this novel, that is as much about the way certain stories get made and told as it is about the stories themselves, Hannah gives us a kind of manifesto for new memoir writing. What we need is a memoir without a self. A memoir about somebody other than me. An understanding that the story of people connected to me might communicate more than the usual me, might show the cultural context of me, might even cast doubt on the viability of me. Let me go over a bit of that again. It's worth further contemplation. An understanding that the story of people connected to me might communicate more than the usual me. A memoir without a me. What Groff means is that the me in this memoir is present, but only obliquely, at several removes, through analogy or metaphor. And though Hannah Groff might protest what I'm about to say, claiming that she only wanted to quote cast doubt on the viability of me, unquote. The fact remains that, in I Pity the Poor Immigrant, she, the me, is still very much the story's subject, even if she is a largely absent subject, or, as a character, a subject under attack. Initially true to her word, though, 
Groff disappears as soon as the introduction is complete. In her place, we meet two altogether different characters, living in a different time and place. The American gangster, Meyer Lansky, and his mistress, a displaced person named Gila Koenig. The year is 1972, and the place is Israel. Lansky is in Israel seeking asylum. In the United States, he has been charged with a number of crimes related to his mafia activities and Las Vegas connections. Underneath all this is that he is reputed to have murdered his associates, including his one-time close friend, Bugsy Siegel. Parenthetically, I Pity the Poor Immigrant includes a crime scene photo of Siegel's body, face awash in blood from an empty eye socket. It's a rare case of effective non-Sibaldian use of photography in a novel. But as it turns out, the narrator's description of the shooting and what happens to Siegel's two eyes during the murder is even more powerful than the image. This is true of all the photos in this book, and it's a testament to Lazar's muscular and fluent style. So, getting back, 1972, Lansky, Israel, seeking asylum. The thing is, the Israeli government does not actually want Lansky to be there. They want to send him back to the U.S. The narrative during this second section of the novel follows Lansky during his final appeals to the public to be allowed to make Aliyah, to step up, in a literal sense, to his ancestral homeland. And we follow Lansky during his last weeks in the land, a mournful, haphazard, almost doomed tour of the landscape and the memories of a prior life in Eastern Europe that this landscape evokes. The writing about the latter is some of my favorite in the novel. Here, for example, Lansky is visiting the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, on the side of which is a cemetery. Lansky is overlooking the cemetery while thinking of his ancestors. There are a lot of factors at play, and the colorful text reflects them all. Below them, the Mount of Olives was a huge lunar space of white stone, white sand, dark gray cedar trees, the cemetery descending like a dust quarry, cut in steps. The old graves looked like part of the hillside, eternal, sloping down in endless terraces toward the valley of Jehoshaphat, where the dead would rise. Above it glowed the old city of Jerusalem, the gold dome of the rock, the crenellated wall, the remnants of David's ancient kingdom, covered over now by the Arab district of Silwan, run down, cubist, hung with laundry. Cubist. Nice. Dogs wandered among the rocks, the broken gates, the weeds. A decrepit rabbi had led them to the grave, where he bent down and cleaned the dirty inscription with his coat sleeve. Lansky pushed his sunglasses back over his head and wiped his eyes. He looked out across the valley without seeing anything but the brightness. He saw his grandfather in a full-length coat, beard, fur-trimmed hat. The dim shul with its broken Torah scrolls decaying on the shelves. The smell of the spice box, the moldy smell of men among books. The yardside candle in its glass. In Tel Aviv, you never thought about these things. You lived here in 1972. He saw himself at twelve, smashing a plate in someone's face. Whores on Madison Street, Starkus and pimps. New York faces crammed beneath the awnings, wagons and pushcarts and rain. He took his sunglasses all the way off and held them folded in his hand. He closed his eyes and said the prayer for the dead, remembering the foreign words from three or four lifetimes ago. Before we left Poland, there was a big argument, he said to no one in particular. I was nine years old, so I remember. 
My grandfather wanted to be buried here in Israel. He was already an old man. My father wanted all of us to go to America. He thought there would be opportunity there. The old story. Opportunity. In Grodno, one day the rabbi came across a dead girl in the woods, a Polish girl. She'd been raped and killed. So the rabbi ran back for help, and they said it must have been him who killed her. He wanted her blood for the Passover, that's what they said. They cut him up into pieces while he was still alive. They took the four pieces of his body, and they nailed them to the city walls of Grodno. It was a brave thing just to take them down and give him a proper burial. We left in 1911, and my parents and my brother and I went to New York, and my grandparents came here. My grandfather wanted to die here, just like I want to die here. Die here as a Jew. Memory, witnessed and handed down, both in the form of the city around him and the family that carried Lansky to this point. And again, that violence that this book is so effective in conveying, here in the form of Lansky's exploits and the story of the blood libel and its consequences back in Poland. This is brilliant stuff. The following chapters go back to New York City, to Lansky's married life, his wife's pregnancy, and his dealings with Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano, the famous New York mobster I first met in the pages of Dr. O's Billy Bathgate. It's been a while since we've heard directly from Hannah Groff, but when we do, we are jarred again, because while we've read the Israel section of the novel assuming Hannah was the author of that material, it turns out those chapters were narrated more by Gila Koenig, Lansky's mistress, than by Groff. There's an immediate payoff for this cleverness, though, because when Hannah does return, it's in the guise of a vengeful adolescent, a student in a class taught by Gila Koenig at a Hebrew school in New York City. Adolescent Hannah can be described as vengeful because her teacher, Gila, the same Gila, has told Hannah a story, in confidence, about Gila's experiences during the war and shortly after. But just after she's confided the story, Gila sees a boy behind Hannah drawing a swastika into his school book, and Gila assumes that Hannah had carelessly relayed her story to this boy. Thus, Hannah, the terrible teenager. And if we assume that this is in fact what happened, there is another possible motivation outside just petty behavior. And that's the fact that Meyer Lansky's former mistress, aside from being Hannah's Hebrew school teacher, is also Hannah's father's current mistress. Or mistress of a sort, the father is on his own, so the sex is not technically illicit, but it does have that air. So, more threads for the web that the story is constructing between characters, times, and places. And that's before another twist. Just as Gila is not quite Hannah's father's mistress, Hannah is not exactly her father's daughter. The relationship between them feels much more like that between a man and his woman on the side. That complex web of relations as a structure to behold is one of the great enticements of I Pity the Poor Immigrant. And just as you're getting a handle on it, about one quarter of the way into the novel, it's reframed by the introduction of the Israeli poet David Belen, and more precisely, the story of his murder and Hannah's role in telling that story. This reframing, in full, goes as follows. A woman goes on a journey. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Tel Aviv, then back to New York. 
I thought I was covering the murder of an Israeli poet named David Bellin, investigating a fairly straightforward crime story. But it became a story that led elsewhere, a story that led everywhere, a story that I would have had no interest in if I hadn't accidentally found myself inside it. Found myself inside it. It's one way to describe what, for Hannah Groff, becomes an obsession. And it's with a quote on obsession that Groff begins the next chapter of the book. We don't choose our obsessions. Our obsessions, invariably against our deepest wishes, choose us. Against our deepest wishes, we become suddenly, inexplicably committed to a path we had avoided, a line of thought we'd had no interest in. So that quote is from the Israeli poet David Bellin, whose murder Hannah Groff is investigating in her capacity as a journalist. The article that comes from this investigation, presented in the next chapter of the novel, was perhaps my favorite part of this book. It's a fragmented look at the seeming gangland murder of a poet who writes about David, King David, who did slew Goliath, whom Bellin describes as one of the original gangsters. So with this fresh material, we have an expansion of what came before. More gangsters, more self-professed and self-made kings, more displaced people, more women left in their wake. All the motifs sprinkled in the first chapters of this book are taken up again, but in a different context, a repetition that transforms the material and gives the reader what feels like a full-spectrum experience. Here, for example are a couple of stanzas from Bellin's poem on David, which is titled Kid Bethlehem. Kid Bethlehem. Trouble from the minute he left his sheep and that rocky place, threatened by the lion and the bear, to soothe King Saul with his harp, then kill Goliath with a small hard stone. A stone killer. They said God was dead, but God is not. God is the small hard stone in the boy's sling. Ouch, yes. And the more time we spend with Bellin, the more we see he is not only a subject in the story, he is also, through his writings and quotes, a commentator and, along with Hannah, a co-conspirator on the novel's mission to illustrate the major themes of this book. In fact, it's Bellin who turns Lansky's dreams for the desert, his gangster attempts to create a new place in wilderness, from a story of Las Vegas into a tale about Israel. Gradually, the novel's center of gravity shifts back to Israel, and the country turns from a setting for the earlier chapters into the focus of the book, just as Hannah, who wishes to efface herself from the story, begins to step into the spotlight. In fact, the two are intertwined, as the history and politics of Israel become the focus, even the obsession of Hannah's thoughts and work. Here was this place she had avoided, associating it with Gila, Gila's personal history, European history. But as the poet Balin says, the places you avoid are the ones that, in the end, take you in completely. In other words, there is something in her evasion that speaks to her attraction, one she didn't wish to admit. At first, Hannah struggles with this new obsession, doesn't know what to make of it, but she comes to use Bellin's murder as a way of speaking about Israeli-Palestinian antagonism, Israeli fear, Israeli militarization, and underneath it, a network of mobs and gangs that crosses nationalistic divides and does business with one another. One piece of that business being politics.
possibly the murder of David Bellin. The latter chapters of I Pity the Poor Immigrant circle back to the earlier chapters, quoting early texts for re-examination, reinforcing suggestions that I thought were already present in the writing. Groff, or Lazar, wants the reader to know certain things, wants to make sure of it. But what happens is that the drive of the early and middle sections of the book begins to stall. This repetition seemed like an attempt to give the novel an epic dimension. And while this book has epic elements in the way it traverses time and space, it is not epic length and did not need the recaps. We had already seen Lansky as King David of Judea, and we had already seen Gila as Hannah, and even as Belen's son. But by the time the novel introduces another child, Lansky's son, Buddy, it somewhat distends its brilliant shape. All this slows the momentum of the book, although I want to make sure that I say that what survives in the memory of this novel is that great momentum that carried the story so far in the first place. For most of I Pity the Poor Immigrant, the author and his narrator make the complex seem effortless. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books Declaration Centenary will be a review of S. Yazar's novel of a day in the life of an army unit in 1948. The novel is called Kirbet Hisei, although I'll be calling it Kirbet Kisei. It's required reading, or rather it was, until recently, and I hope one day it is again. Burning Books is part of the Litopia Network of Podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email, the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice, I'm at Burning Books Pod. Lastly, you can reach me at facebook.com slash ericbeckrubin. My thanks to Natalie Matheson, Hakan Ozgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of this program, and as always... Go Jays.